death construction in the fields of bodies burning as the war machine keeps turning death and hatred to mankind poisoning their brainwashed minds welcome to the anarchist world this week broadcast across australia on the national community radio satellite Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Toscana, hosting today's program. Do you wonder what anarchism is all about? Anarchos without rulers. The anarchist struggle, or the anarchist statement, mission statement, do you like that? Is to create a society without rulers. Let's go back to basic principles. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people as we see every day around the globe? Simple inequalities in power and wealth. That's right. Inequalities in power and wealth allow people to have a monopoly on the use of force to impose their ideas on the rest of the planet. I know it sounds a bit, you know, conspiratorial. That's what it's about. Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is to devolve power, that's share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and it's the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Now, these are exceptionally conservative concepts. There's nothing radical about being an anarchist. Maybe the mechanisms by which we create an anarchist society have, an anarch- have a radical tinge to them, but the actual essence of anarchism is something that people have been struggling for for thousands of years to overthrow the yoke of self-appointed leaders and leaders we elect. It's very simple. All right, well, let's move on. Now, obviously, with the uh, voice referendum coming up, people are beginning to talk about the Constitution, and those of you who were in Melbourne last week, I did a presentation on the Australian Constitution called the Constitutional Freedom Ride and uh, that uh, presentation will be up on the YouTube channel josephtoscano.nam N-A-A-R-M hopefully in the next few days so you can see what I had to say not that what I have to say is any different maybe to anybody else but I think because you know the way the Australian state was formed and the constitutional arrangements which were put in place on the 1st of January 1901, irrespective of whether you accept the constitution, you call yourself a sovereign citizen, whether you never ceded your sovereign rights to this land because you're a prior occupation of this land, the dilemma is that the constitution is the mechanism via which this society has been created and it's the laws which come from that constitutional framework which... In, in many regards, um, create the type of society we find ourselves in. Now, I listened. I was listening to Mr Dutton a few days ago. You know, I like to listen to Mr Dutton. You know, he's a potential Prime Minister. And as I said before, it's all about creating fear. But he made a very, very, very 
interesting statement, which I'm sure 99% of you may agree with, that democracy is about majority rule. And it is. If you get 51% of the vote, you know, once preferences are distributed, you're in. Three years, six years. It is about majority rule. But, demos, the people. Democracy is not just about majority rule. It's much more. It is a political process which is entwined in a constitutional framework. Whether that constitution is based on conventions or a written constitution is irrelevant. So having democracy without constitutional protections is the road to tyranny. Think about it. If there is no individual, if there's no protection for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power, what type of democracy do we have? Is it lynch mob democracy where the majority decides to disenfranchise a group because of the colour of their skin or the language they speak or their gender? And the list goes on and on. What is democracy rule by the majority without protections within a constitutional framework? It is nothing more an excuse for tyranny. So I thought to myself, let's look at the Australian Constitution, something, it's a document I'm familiar with. It, uh, I'll give you a little bit of historical background, because I think it's important. This, the Australian Constitution came about as a push for federation of six dominions, British dominions. The first one was New South Wales. Then I think the next one was Tasmania. Then we had Victoria, we had West Australia, South Australia, Victoria and Queensland. These are the six states. These were independent entities. If you live in Victoria and you've got time to go, and you live in Melbourne, you've got time to go down to uh, the bay, if you go to Half Moon, Half Moon Bay, you'll notice a shipwreck called the Cerebus. Now, the Cerebus was purchased by the Victorian government for defence against the impending Russian invasion. That's right. That's what they thought was going to happen in 1890, as we believe in 2023. The impending Russian invasion. So, obviously, they had their own naval forces. So, these were independent dominions. But there was a problem. And that problem was based on the protectionism and trade and tariffs. And those of you who are, you know, those of you who are, know your history remember the ridiculous situation that occurred before Federation or many years after Federation, where if you took a train from Melbourne to, uh, from Sydney to Melbourne or the other way around, you'd have to get off at Albury to change trains because of the different railway gauges in the different states. So the original push for federation actually came 
from politicians, the premiers mainly, of the six states. And in 1890 and 1891, uh, there were uh, conferences which had little popular support, uh, which tried to promote the idea of uh, federalism, the six states coming together as one nation. In order to overcome this resistance, a number of popular elections were held by people who were able to vote at that particular point in time to elect representatives to a constitutional convention which was held in Melbourne in 1897-1898. Now most of the people who were elected, although the emerging Labor Party attempted to have people elected, it failed. And obviously, apart from South Australia, women didn't have the vote in any of the uh, other dominions. And the fact is that most of the people who were elected were basically either involved in trade or business or were politicians. And they were responsible for creating this constitution, this legal framework, which still has profound ramifications for each and every one of us. And that proposal went to the states uh, by popular election. It was uh, accepted in five states, not accepted in New South Wales. Uh, it was rejigged and then put to the people of uh, New South Wales. And uh, cut a long story short, on the uh, 9th of July 1900, Queen Victoria gave royal assent to the bill to form a federation under a constitutional monarch. Don't forget that, under a constitutional monarch. And in, on the 17th of September, the Act was proclaimed, and on the 1st of January 1901, this new nation arose, where the six dominions became one state. So what's in the Constitution? Now, a lot of people think... The Australian Constitution is a document which preserves our freedoms. Look, I hate to disappoint you, but at the convention in 1897-1898, which uh, formalised the final document, which went to a referendum in all the different uh, states, the fact is that the minority faction which wanted to incorporate a Bill of Rights in the Constitution was defeated. And although the Australian Constitution has 128 segments, the fact is that very, very, very few of these sections actually protect the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. I mean, we tend to think that questions like freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom to, you know, withdraw your labour, are all incorporated in the Australian Constitution. They're not. The Australian Constitution is basically a document which regulates the relationship between the various states, the six founding states, and the new central government, the federal government. And if you look at the different sections of the 128 you know, uh, 
points. There's a section regarding the legislature, which is about parliament, House of Reps and the Senate. There's a section regarding the executive. Parliament makes the law, the executive carries out the laws, and then you've got the judiciary. That's the third section. The fourth section, interesting, is about trade and fi finances and trade. The fifth section is about state powers, the powers that are retained by the states, because this is a federation. And it's no accident that the Senate quota for Tasmania, which has about 500 million people, sorry, my apologies, 500,000 people, to New South Wales, which has almost 7 million people, is the same. Because the whole point about a federation is to give the smaller states some power in terms of reviewing legislation. So what are the segments of the Australian Constitution which give us protection against the arbitrary exercise of state power? Well, it's four, and they're minimal. They've got nothing to do with freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom from want, freedom, you know, to have, you know, have our physical needs met. Nothing like that. Security, nothing like that. The first one is in section 51, subsection, I think, 21. It could be 23. And in this section, it says that the Commonwealth Government has to pay fair compensation if it acquires your property doesn't mean the state governments have to because they've got their own constitution. But if the Commonwealth government acquires property, it needs to pay compensation for that property to you. Fair. Now, the next section, which is interesting, is Section 80, which gives you a right. And there's the right to trial by jury if you are charged with an indictable offence. Now, section 117 is interesting because you've got to remember the whole purpose of the Federation was to ensure there were no trade barriers between the states. And section 117 is quite interesting if you have a look at it because it's about that it's unconstitutional to, um, what's the word, how shall I put it, is to punish somebody through legislation on a state basis because they come from a different state, okay? It's not about, it's not about outlawing racism or sexism or misogyny or whatever it is. It's all about, it's all about discrimination. It outlaws discrimination based on on the state you reside in. So if you reside in New South Wales, they can't make legislation to punish, you know, to restrict the movement of, say, of people from Victoria. So you, there's no discrimination regarding where you live. That's the... That's that. And section 116 indirectly gives people freedom of religious choice. 
because 116 clearly states that the government of the day, that's the Commonwealth government, cannot make legislation regarding a national religion or regarding forcing people to take oaths based on a particular religious practice for uh, you know their positions. And that indirectly gives people the freedom of uh, religious observation. They can join whatever religion they like. So these are the four things. Now, the important thing is that the High Court, which interprets the Australian Constitution, never talks about rights or even implied rights. It talks about freedoms and guarantees. And in 1995, the High Court found in order to hold elections, you needed freedom of political conversation during the electoral period. And that electors should be free from coercion as far as the votes they're concerned. This was a a guaranteed. Now, the Australian Constitution is not just about what's written in the documents, it's also about conventions which are related to Westminster. Well, the thing about conventions is they're made to be broken. I'll give you an example. In 1970, before 1975, the withholding of supply to the Whitlam Labor government was to a large degree due to their loss of the majority in the Senate. And that occurred because the convention in the past was that if a senator retired or died from a particular political party, that the state which would reappoint that senator had to reappoint a senator from that same political party. But uh, Premier Lewis broke from New South Wales, broke that convention. Obviously, Bielke Peterson broke that convention. At the same time, the convention was that if a prime minister could not guarantee supply, they either called a fresh election or resigned. And Whitlam refused to do this. So these are just two conventions. The interesting thing is about the convention in uh, regarding um, yeah, regarding resignation has never been resolved because the Governor-General, who's the representative of the Queen or the, sorry, the King Charles III these days, um, has reserved powers which are actually not listed in the Constitution. That's why there was always that issue regarding the dismissal of the Labor government in 1975. But in 1977, a referendum was passed, one of the eight referendums that has been passed since Federation, which constitutionally recognised that if a senator uh, died or retired, the state government would have to appoint a senator from the same political party. Now, with the voice referendum coming up, I think it's important that we look at the way the Constitution is arranged. Because there is a section in the Constitution about changing constitutional arrangements. See, the difference is when something is in the Constitution, Parliament cannot pass laws at a federal level to change those constitutional arrangements. Obviously, in Victoria, it's different because the constitution can be altered by the government of the day. But as far as the federal constitution is concerned, it can only 
be altered by the people through a referendum. That referendum can only be called by the government of the day who decides on the words in that referendum question and it needs to be passed in a majority of states by a majority of voters. Till 1977, until there, was a constitu- until there was a referendum which allowed uh, people in the territories to act votes to be counted. People in the territory had no say as far as constant referendums were concerned. Now they're not, they've got a say in terms of the n- total numbers. So it is a high bar. Any constitutional change is a high bar to jump. And since 1901, there have been 44 questions put to the Australian people in constitutions and only eight have passed. In 1906, uh, there, were, uh, there was a referendum to make some minor changes to the way the senators were took up their seats in Parliament. Uh, instead of starting on January, they started in July. In 1910, there was another successful referendum where the Commonwealth Government was given the power to take over state debt, which had been acquired since Federation. I think the next one, I mean, this gets a bit complex here. That was 1910. In 1926, there was another referendum which was successful, which allowed the Commonwealth Government to take over new state debt. Obviously, during the Depression... There was a huge issue regarding state debt, unemployment, dispossession, and the list goes on and on. Then in 1946 is what I consider to be one of the most important passages of legislation. After World War II, people demanded better. They'd sacrificed over 25,000 Australian men and women had been destroyed in the, you know, in the war, had been killed, and people wanted more. They wanted more. And before 1946... The Commonwealth Government only had legislative power regarding invalid pensions, which are now called disability support pensions and old age pensions. In 1946, a referendum was passed which gave the Commonwealth Government the power to provide support in in terms of sickness benefits, unemployment benefits, widows' pensions, hospitals, dental services... And the list goes on and on. Student student support, unemployment support, as I said before. And all these things which we now take for granted that have occurred since 1946 through Commonwealth legislation and redistribution of taxation revenue is a direct result of that 1946 referendum which gave Parliament, the Commonwealth Parliament, the power to make that legislation. The next significant piece of legislation... Uh, referendum that was passed, and this is the fifth, was in 1967, where a lot of people think this was a referendum about counting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the census. It was, but the central issue was, to a significant degree, the horrors that had been experienced by First Nations people were a direct result of state legislation direct result of state legislation. And the Constitution in 1901 made it quite clear that the Commonwealth Government had no legislative powers regarding First Nations people. Because I think it was section 51, subsection 
31, I think, and it said that the Commonwealth Government had power to make special legislation as deemed necessary for any race. And obviously that part, but it had a little exception, except for Aboriginals in any state. Except for Aboriginals in any state. So obviously this part of the legislation was about the white Australia policy, introducing and legislating regarding the white Australia policy because the Commonwealth Government had power and continues to have power to make legislation as deemed necessary regarding any race. Now, the 1967 referendum meant that the except for Aborigines in any state was removed from that statement, but the Commonwealth Government continues to have power to make legislation regarding any race within the constitutional changes. And And the last three constitutional changes which occurred in 1977 was one, as I said before, was the ability, was the to force the states to appoint senators who'd retired or died with uh, uh, with somebody from the same political party. The second one was that high court judges and federal court judges needed to retire by the age of 70. And the third was that people in the territories' votes could be counted in a referendum as far as the overall vote was concerned. Now, since 1977, there's been... Only one referendum, that was in 1999, on the Republican issue, which failed, where the Republican uh, groups split, split the vote, and uh, John Howard had his way, and we continue to wor- worship His Majesty King Charles III, his heirs, and whatever. And now, 20, what is it, 26 years, 26 years later, we've got another referendum. Now, obviously, there will be a huge debate regarding this, and there is already, and I understand that a date will be set in October in the next few days, but we'll talk about it later on. So what I'm saying is, if you think the Constitution protects you against anything, think again. The High Court has over and over again stated quite clearly the Commonwealth Government has extraordinary powers And ultimately, irrespective of state legislation, if the state and the Commonwealth legislate regarding the same issue, Commonwealth law trumps state law. And you think the states have no power because this is a federation and the fact there is a segment in the the Constitution which talks about states and the power they're able to wield, they have extraordinary powers as you saw during COVID-19. Let's move on. Let's move on. I'm sure you've been bored to tears with that little uh, half-hour dissertation regarding our current constitutional arrangements. Now, sometimes I think I live in la-la land. Now, last week, I understand the membership of the CFMEU have forced their executive to make a statement regarding duck shooting in Victoria. And we've been told that if they, if the state government bans duck shooting, there will be industrial strife on construction sites across Victoria. And I'm thinking to myself, what, 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 what? Here we were a few weeks ago trying to get the CFMEU involved in putting a uh, green ban on the demolition of the Barrack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne. 
and maintaining public housing on that particular site. No interest whatsoever. And now they're coming out about duck shooting. Now, I know, I'm sure most of you don't know who James Strater was. And I'm sure James Strater is spinning in his grave. Now, who was James Strater and why is he spinning in his grave? Well, James Strater is the historical beginning of the Australian trade union movement. In 1822, James Strater was a ticket of leave man who worked for Hannibal MacArthur which, you know, he used to grow sheep, obviously, for their wool to be sent to the satanic mills in uh, England. Now, James Strater organised this country's first strike during the lambing season. And he was charged with this offence. He was charged with the offence of inciting his master's servants to combine, you know, combine, that's about, you know, unionism, inciting his master's servants to combine to oblige him to increase their wages and raise their, sorry, raise their wages and increase their rations. This is what he was charged with, 1822, March 1822. During the lambing season, James Strater, ticket of leave man, which means he's just served his uh, seven-year sentence and he's uh, on parole for another seven years. That's what ticket of leave means. Free labour. I mean, the great thing about Australia it was based on free land and free labour. The free land came from the uh, destruction or the attempted destruction of this country's First Nations people and the theft of their land. And the free labour came from the convicts who were sent here, and the majority of cases for minor economic crimes. Not all, but majority. So, he attends the magistrate's court. There are three magistrates. This is a serious case because he's interfering with the, you know, with the fact the master control over his servants. And I'll read you out. Well, I won't read out because I've got it in my head because I think this is an exceptionally important case, James Strater was charged with inciting his master's servants, that's Hannibal MacArthur, to combine, to oblige, you like that, not force him, but to oblige him to raise their wages and increase their rations. Obviously, under the Master and Servants Act, which governed the relationship between workers and uh, employers in those days, 1822 in New South Wales, he was found guilty. And he was sentenced to 500 lashes of the cat o' nine tail. 500 lashes. Could you imagine 500 times a whip being you know, been hit by a whip 500 times. That's an extraordinary number of lashes. The usual punishment was 50 to 100, but he was sentenced to 500. And if he survived that, he was sentenced to one month solitary confinement on bread and water, and then after that, 
five years imprisonment in a penal colony. You like that? Australia's first trade unionists charged with inciting his master's servants to combine to oblige him to increase their wages and raise their rations and he's sentenced to 500 lashes, one month solitary confinement of bread and water and five years penal servitude. Obviously, James Strater, 202 years later, no, 202, 212, what's that, 220, yeah, 200, my apologies, 201 years later, would be spinning in his grave at seeing the great CMFMEU coming out regarding duck shooting. Ah, well, this is what happens when you pass legislation to remove workers' ability to withdraw their labour outside an enterprise bargaining agreement period. So next time you hear us wax lyrical, that's the Australian government about human rights overseas and the fact that people, you know, can't form trade unions, maybe they should look in their own backyard. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Corporatisation of everyday life. Now, we like to hang shit on the US of A, all right? But sometimes you've got to give them a tick of approval. In the US of A, the United States of America, if a corporation gets too big for its boots and it controls more than 25% of a particular entity in terms of services or goods, it can be forced to, to break up. These are the antitrust laws. In Australia, we now have what's called currently the corporate reporting season where the corporations report their profits. And the great thing is we've seen them all increase their profits. Even that food giant, you know, Coles. I'm thinking to myself, if you have an economic system which is based on the concept of private investment for private profit and government which theoretically represents the people of this country, stands away from legislating laws which prevent corporations from dominating the marketplace, then you get what we've got in Australia. The corporatisation of everyday life. Walk into any major shopping complex in this country you'll see the same brands. It's what we call the bananisation of Australia, where a handful of corporations dominate the marketplace in that particular sphere. For example, finances, four major banks with a fifth one knocking on the door. Food, three. The list goes on and on. Hardware, one, possibly two. The thing is, corporatisation without regulation is the logical endpoint of a private investment, of a private profit world. Now, I know governments, especially conservative governments and reactionary governments, like 
to talk about small business, the engine room of Australian society. You know, I'm very familiar with small business. The engine room of Australian society employs 5 million workers, about 50% of the workforce. The rest are employed by government and corporations. The fact is that small business, which, you know, somehow thinks that private investment for private profit mantra is universal, has something to learn. Because the major, how shall I say, not beneficiaries, the, ma- the people who, who suffer most from the corporatisation of everyday life are both consumers and small business. No wonder 95% of small businesses close their doors within five years of opening them. Taxation burden at the state and federal level as well as the ability not to be able to compete against corporations who have a monopoly not only on selling things, goods and services, but a monopoly as far as the financial sector is concerned. And we never seem to learn that lesson. In 1911, the Labor government created the Commonwealth Bank for that very reason, to provide loans to small businesses and to try to put some stability in a banking sector where banks continue to collapse on a regular basis. The natural endpoint of a capitalist system is corporate capitalism. And whether it's the internet, the World Wide Web, whatever you like to call it, social media, we see how corporatisation, how corporations manipulate the marketplace to suit them and put small business out of business constantly. There are millions of Australians out there who've lost hundreds, billions of dollars Creating small business, so they've got a little bit of independence as far as their working life is concerned. They're sick of working for a corporation or a boss who now find themselves financially stretched and in many cases bankrupted because of the unfair competition which occurs. And irrespective of the toothless tiger that ASIC is and you know, these organisations are, The fact is that unless we have significant antitrust laws to break down these corporations, consumers will continue to be exploited, their workers will continue to be exploited, small business will continue to be exploited in order to maximise profits for their major shareholders. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I see... Corporations is the apex predators. That's right, the apex predators in a capitalist jungle. They're the apex predators and they're very good at cleaning up their opposition, especially when the number one apex predator, which is supposedly the Commonwealth government, is too frightened or refuses to regulate their behaviour 
and protect sections of the Australian economy which are responsible for employing so many people. You know, it goes on and on. You know, it goes, it goes like this, right? You're a small business, you're competing against a corporation, unfair competition, right? So therefore you squeeze your workers in order to stay alive. It's that simple. So there's ramifications everywhere if we allow corporations to continue to dominate our social sphere, our economic sphere, our cultural sphere, our sporting sphere. You look at any sporting team, professional, in inverted commas, sporting team, their bloody jackets are littered with the logos of corporations who use them in order to promote their brands and, and profit for their major shareholders. It's just extraordinary. And we allow it to continue. Words, words, words. Now, I find words interesting. Although English was not my first language, I didn't speak a word of English until I was about five or six. Uh, the important thing is that language is fundamental to the type of society we create. Fundamental. As I've mentioned before, Australia to a significant degree is a society based on stereotypes. Not based on reality. And what social media has given people the opportunity is to use that media uh, platform, those media platforms, in order to magnify stereotypes we just, you know, mumbled about in the backyard barbecue or in our personal conversations. I was surprised having a conversation with somebody I knew and they spoke about the houses next door, you know, stereotype. We saw the, the pinnacle of stereotype politics with the lifters and leaners ideology which was promoted by the previous conservative reactionary government which allowed robo-debt, a totally illegal, unconstitutional scheme, to prosper because people accepted, as a population, we accepted the stereotypes that the unemployed are somehow lazy and drug addicts and, you know, these stereotypes. Then we've got stereotypes about people who wear things on their heads, you know. Stereotypes. Stereotypes about different ethnic groups, cultural groups. I was in a, I hate to say this, in a supermarket... And, uh, you know, in a country town, quite a large country town, which will remain nameless. And the stereotypes of people, you know, who can't speak English was just extraordinary to hear. And the thing is, it's out there. And the most important thing we need to remember is that when we start thinking in terms of stereotypes, that all people with funny things on their heads are, you know, terrorists, or all people whose skin colour is purple are pedophiles, you know. And the thing is that there are many of these stereotypes in our community, although you may pass legislation to prohibit people from expressing them in a public forum, 
the fact is they are part and parcel of everyday life. Things like the stereotype, you know, all trade unionists are criminals. All public servants are lazy. All politicians are crooks. The fact is that stereotypes, the creation of stereotypes within the community and their explosion within the social media network help to divide us. And that's the key, isn't it? It's about creating divisions in society. So we fight against each other regarding minuscule differences, whether it's gender, well, let's say, I'll remove the word minuscule, but differences, all right? They may be important, they may not be important, but it's about differences. And while we as a people, that's right, as a people, continue to fight amongst ourselves regarding these differences, we will never be in a position to look at who has the boot on our throats. And the people who have the boots on our throats may not be the person, it won't be the person who speaks a different language or has got a different sexual orientation or, um, you know, has come from another part of the universe to, to the land of milk and honey. The fact is, the group that has their boots on our throat are the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication whose power has been extended by an ideology based on governments keeping out of the way of the corporate sector and allowing the corporate sector to metastasize like any cancerous growth which will eventually kill us. And the fact is that until we turn our attention as people to that, nothing's going to change. And that's why I encourage people to look at the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website and I encourage people to join because what we need is political, social and cultural movements which unite us, not on the basis of differences, but which unite us in terms of our resistance to that 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication and the 8% of Australians who somehow find themselves in a position where they've got enough disposable income because of this country's laws which force people to invest in certain areas which allow them to make money from their investments. It's a real issue. It's an important issue. And irrespective of how much legislation is passed in terms of anti-racist laws, anti-misogynist laws, anti-this laws, anti-that law, the fact is that while we continue to fight amongst each other regarding these differences, we will never be in a position to change things in this country so that everybody, as I said at the beginning of the program, is able to make decisions regarding the type of society they live in through direct democratic means and our ability to resolve the problems which we face in this society via holding wealth in common. 
radical concepts, although they're conservative to begin with. Oh, I noticed once again there's a tax reform debate. And, you know, when I hear about tax reform debate, I think to myself, oh, God, the corporate sector's at it again. Look, you don't need tax reform in this country. What we need is the nationalisation without compensation of our natural resources. We could solve every, not social, cultural problem, every financial problem tomorrow. We could compensate First Nations people if we nationalised. That's right. All those wonderful minerals which are extracted from the land and use the profits that were made to serve us, not serve unelected shareholders whose main responsibility is to, you know, their corporate masters. You could solve every problem tomorrow. Obviously, it would need huge change. Huge change. Considering their uh, uh, bleating. I mean, if the Norwegians can do it, where they've done a little hybrid system where 90% of profits go back to the Norwegian people, 10% of profits go to the companies which exploit those resources. We do it the other way around. 99% of profits go to these corporations which extract these minerals which belong to all of us. And 1% seems to go to the Australian population and we continue to have major social issues as far as education is concerned, as far as healthcare is concerned, as far as infrastructure is concerned, and the list goes on and on. And obviously, we are in a position, if we want it to be, to resolve these issues almost overnight. Almost overnight. Now, one last thing. Be careful. No, don't be careful about listening to me, but be careful about medicine for profit. All right? I think it was earlier this week, or maybe it was late last, I think it was earlier this week, there was this hullabaloo about this new test which would be able to define body markers in terms of early diagnosis for ovarian cancer. Now, ovarian cancer is an exceptionally serious cancer. It's very hard to diagnose and 50% of people are dead within five years of diagnosis because when a diagnosis is made, it can only be made through surgery, you'll find that uh, the cancer is spread. And the fact is that a biological test, a simple blood test, would be revolutionary in terms of survival rates. Now, normally in medicine, what you do is you have your results published in a medical journal of some note. That allows other people to look at the information you present and try to knock holes in your theory. In this case, and this is an all-too-familiar case we are seeing, with the privatisation of research, what we are now seeing is private corporations putting out their results, in inverted commas, prior to publication in the media. For one very good reason. One, it's very difficult 
if you're a scientist in that particular area, to give a balanced appraisal of what is being proposed without actually looking at the results of their research in a medical journal. But two, it's about increasing the interest in that particular corporation, which are normally based, you know, it's a shareholder-driven companies, in terms of gathering investment into that particular company. So here we have all the major news outlets in this country, except one uh, segment of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, treating this news item as if it's earth-shattering news. The fact is, it was nothing more, nothing more than a publicity stunt to raise the revenue for this particular company. I'm not saying that what they are suggesting they haven't done. Even they are suggesting the test is only about 90% effective. And in these type of tests, you really need about 99% effectiveness for them to be of any major value. But it's a cynical attempt to manipulate the system to increase profitability for that particular company as far as that particular test or that particular drug is concerned. And we see it over and over again. And this has occurred because of the privatisation of research in this country. You've been listening to The Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages. I only respond to pleasant ones on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can go to a few websites, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, pipsy.net. A few Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Public, public Housing Everybody's Business, Defending Extend Public Housing. Uh, YouTube channels, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, josephtoscano.nam. The list goes on and on. You can always send me a letter, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. We still have people sending us letters, which is nice. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Young Kelly's wandered into the studio. We're now ready to leave you. So thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. If you got some information out of it, good. If you didn't like it, switch on to another channel. Hundreds of them out there. I'm sure you'll find something to suit your particular interests. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community channel, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. See you. Well, I won't see you and I won't hear you, but you'll listen to me hopefully next week on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.